Colonel Rat alert. Civil defense information will be broadcast at 640. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Y2K, how can we prepare? Stop a few of their machines and radios. Throw them into darkness for a few hours. We are fighting for our lives. My family must survive. Boom for five years. Thousand gallons of gas. Air filtration, water filtration. from the frozen tundra that is east central alberta canada streaming live on youtube facebook twitter twitch rumble and odyssey welcome back to the workshop where we create community find freedom promote preparedness and share success i am Toolman tim today is november the 8th 2023 and this is episode 395 of workshop radio how in the world is everyone out there today? In just a minute, I've got an awesome guest. I'm I'm excited. I met her in person at Prepper Camp, and uh, we hit it off. I give her some tech help, and she gave me a book, and we're going to bring her on to share her journey. Anyway, it's great. Let's get two announcements out of the way. They're short today. Number one, remember, we have switched our time for our shows. Our regularly scheduled shows are an hour earlier. You guys spoke. I listened. 6 p.m. Mountain Time. It's going to be great. I can't wait. <laughs> Everybody says new studio. Let's get it out of the way. I'm on the road today. Wow, what a day. I forgot my backdrop, so you get to see this glorious... Well, I brought my backdrop holder, but not the backdrop, so you get to see this glorious hotel picture behind me, and <laughs> it's a wonderful day. We always love it. We go roll with the punches, and I'm running off a mobile hotspot today because the Wi-Fi is absolutely atrocious at this hotel, and it is what it is. But we always, we are, uh, we're prepared and we're going to work through it. And number two, guys, since this is taking the place of our regularly scheduled Friday episode, our sponsor today is Homestead Ham Radio and Two Chicks Homestead. Good friends of mine. Make sure you go out there and support them. Nate is building an incredible business with kind of turnkey pre-programmed radios. And of course, they have their, all of their other products from their Etsy store. So make sure you support because we, uh, we love to do value for value exchange here in the workshop. So support those who support us. Guys, with that, give me just a moment, and I'm going to bring on Jessica. Hey. Hey, Jessica, how are you? I am super. How are you? Very, very good. I'm glad to finally have you on. Oh, it's great. No, it was really nice to meet you at Prepper Camp. Um, and thank you for that tech help. I couldn't have done my presentation without you. <laughs> Not a problem. I saw your video when you left. It uh, with all the vines. Um, yeah. is, is that not insane down there? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. The kudzu? Yeah. yeah. No, it's just, they're monstrous. And they have really taken over everything. And they, they were meant to, like, stabilize the soil and stop erosion and stuff. And they're just, uh, they're a monster now. Yeah. I, you know, anyway, where I live in Canada, they, they introduced moose to Newfoundland 100 years ago as a food stuff. Yeah. And same thing, just absolutely took over the entire province. So, you know, we never really know where we're going to end up, do we? Even with the yeah. best intentions. We mess with nature. So tell us your story, Jessica. I finished your book recently. And I, anyway, it was a journey and a half. I, I appreciate it. So kind of tell us where'd you start and kind of where'd you end up? Sure. Well, yeah, the book begins... Um, with me working in tech. So I had been a journalist for many years, had trained in anthropology, study of human culture, and I was writing articles and it wasn't really paying the bills what I needed to support a family and buy a house in the Bay Area. Absolutely crazy dream. But I said, okay, how can I make some money? And it was to advise tech companies and CEOs of startups and venture capitalists about how to write, how to get out their message. And I was working in tech for about four years 
and just putting up with so much. Can we swear on this? So much BS. Oh, you can say, no, you can say you're good. Promise. Okay. Go right ahead. Just uh, the stuff coming out of these arrogant, entitled tech uh, mouths was just really uh, alarming to me because they would promise that they were going to solve every problem of humanity from like earwax buildup to so-called climate change. Um, and the solutions that I saw were just entrapping us in more tech and taking us away from our families, taking us away from pursuits outside. Um, and I myself was growing kind of sicker, more anxious, more overworked. I wasn't able to be the mom I wanted to be or the wife I wanted to be or, you know, the person, uh, the human on earth. And so I had to uh, take a hard look at what I was doing and how I could get out of it, right? And so I did something pretty extreme and I said, all right, I'm sick of digital tech. I don't wanna help develop apps anymore. I, I don't believe in digital utopia. What was what were humans using before all of this was developed, right? And I started getting into primitive skills and uh, the basic, or the original human stem. So how did we find food? How did we get clean water? How did we build shelters, make clothes, make all of our daily items from stuff from nature, right? Before industry, before agriculture. Uh, had a little bit of a background in the study of hunter-gatherers, right? And people who live simply a wild foraging around the earth, right? This is this is what humans have done for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years since the beginning of our evolution. Um, and there are lots of people practicing these skills today. So I went to go learn from them and uh, ended up, you know, flint napping and hide tanning and basket weaving, learning how to forage, track animals doing everything outside, right? So it was a complete 180 from where I had been uh, working in tech in these very chic offices with HVAC and dry cleaned clothes and like everything super civilized. Um, and the journey took about four or five years of me traveling around, spending time with people, bringing along my two daughters who at the time were um, six and nine and then growing. And uh, it just completely changed my life. I couldn't stand the city anymore. I actually realized I had to get out of my uh, marriage, which was kind of keeping me in a, a very civilized mindset. Um, and I moved out to the country and got my own land where I can you know, forage and be wild and have privacy and invite people to come learn skills. So it's been a long time and uh, quite, quite a dramatic change for me, but something that's made me healthier and happier. So I, I love that. Hey, you're good at giving an elevator pitch or uh, the, the, the overview of that. I appreciate that because, man, it was a journey and a half. And as I'm reading your book and um, <laughs> I'm reading it and I'm like, this reads like she was having a bit of a midlife crisis. Oh, and yeah. I don't mean that. Yeah. But I was like, I don't want to say that to her. And then you totally embrace it in the book. You're like, this is exactly. And not, and I, guys, you got to understand, I don't mean this in a bad way. I just mean coming to grips with where you stood. So was there one was there one moment that made you kind of start turning toward all of these you know sometimes there's a catalyst and sometimes it's just a long slow burn but was there any one thing that kind of flipped you that said I got to start looking into this stuff Yeah it was when I realized that uh, my mother's untimely death due to multiple sclerosis which happened now 14 years ago that that was a disease that was completely caused by civilization and by civilization i mean her lifestyle her diet her um inability to be outside get vitamin d get fresh air 
be exposed to microbes that may have influenced her immune system. And the reason we know it's a disease of civilization is because when we look at hunter-gatherers, existing tribes that live off of the wild today, you know, still without very without any technology at all, they don't get uh, diseases of civilization. So our culture's top killers, heart disease, cancer, metabolic diseases, diabetes, et cetera, uh, hunter-gatherers really don't get those. They enjoy like a long life of robust health. There's other detriments to their lifestyle. It's not perfect. It's not wonderful um, all the time. But you know, we have created a lot of problems for ourselves by the lifestyle that we have in technological situations. So realizing that, you know, I could still find a mom if it weren't for the way that we live, threw me down the rabbit hole. Like, okay, well, how can I prevent that from myself? How can I encourage other people to get the kind of ancestral health that we all used to enjoy? So what started as a health journey, you know, and a lot of people have done that with like paleo diet, with um, you know, barefoot running shoes, with uh, changing how they sit and posture, et cetera, to make it more natural. But the truth is that our entire life can shift to be more ancestral. So I wanted to figure out how to do that. I liked, uh, I appreciated that you put the good and the bad in there when you were telling your stories because you had a story early on in the book where you guys decided to pull over on the side of the road and pick up some a carcass. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I trust I've dealt with my fair share of dead animals, but and I know, you know, I, I had friends in college who were on like this phone list. They lived in Alaska. A moose would get hit in the middle of the night, they'd go pick it up and process it, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And I'm I'm listening to you and I'm like, so tell that story. You guys got motivated to stop. Was it was it a fox, the first animal you brought home with you? Yeah, that's right. Somebody said there's feedback issues. I was hearing that too. I don't know if there's anything we can do. Um, um, I'm not um, getting it on my end. Hang on. I'll see what I can. Yeah, you go ahead and tell. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a crazy story. Uh, here I was, you know, fresh out of Silicon Valley and I go attend my first primitive skills gathering because I was just so curious about this lifestyle um, and people who were you know, practicing these ancient human ways of life. We spent a week with these folks. And while we were at the, the gathering, we learned all sorts of skills. So we were like pounding acorns into flour and we were making sandals out of rawhide. We were weaving baskets. We were doing archery. And then I saw folks who were processing the hides of roadkill animals. And to at first, it was just incredibly gross. Um, because, right, to flesh a hide is, is not that appealing to somebody who hasn't seen it their entire life or who hasn't been out hunting or exposed to that kind of lifestyle. But I was inspired. I was like, you know what? This is my edge. This is, this is where I'm getting uncomfortable. And so I think I need to push myself because I really was in that period of like, life has to change. I'm not happy. Got to do something about it. Maybe picking up a roadkill fox will change things for me. Um, no, but it was that desire to redeem those lives that all of us see as we're passing on the freeway. So many animals, a million animals a day is the estimate, uh, are killed by our need for speed and our desire to get somewhere quickly, not watching for who's crossing. Uh, and then these animals die and they could be a source of materials and sometimes food for us. And so I wanted to kind of redeem that waste and imitate these badass folks I saw at the primitive skills gathering, but I did not have the skills at that point. So I, I knew how to drag a fox into my car and uh, procrastinate about doing anything about it. But when it came time to skin it, I kind of utterly failed. 
But what happens is, you know, we're not in a group of ancestors who are teaching us anymore, like we once lived. Uh, most of us don't have an elder who's there to tell us how things were done. You know, a lot of Native Americans don't even have that, even though they're uh, two or three generations removed from a lifestyle that was very close to the earth. So I don't fault myself too much, but yeah, I wrecked that first project and then went on through the book to take a couple more animals and uh, perfect my my skinning and my animal processing skills. Definitely not perfect, but honing them, working on it. And still to this day, like this past weekend, I was with a bunch of friends and we were butchering a couple of goats. And each time you do that, you know, it's um, it's really, it's intense to take a life, but it's, it's very important to realize that if you do eat meat, um, it's, you know, to, to understand how that process goes, that it doesn't just appear magically in plastic packages at the grocery store. There's a lot of work there. Uh, there's that boundary, that space between life and death that has to be crossed. Right. And so I'm still, I'm still in the process of learning how to process, but, um, but it's a lifelong practice. When you, uh, you went to um, a, a week long survival thing, and I believe it was in there and I, my mind might be off on it, but you'd mentioned how society doesn't equip us for dealing with death today. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be, that's a theme that I get from guest after guest who's in the preparedness field, into homesteading, into self-reliance, rewilding. So can you kind of elaborate on that or where you see that, especially from your anthropology background? And I love your sociological bent too. that. I really appreciate a book written from that kind of perspective. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a little bit of a nerdy book, right? My editors made me make all sorts of citations and uh, I had to prove every fact that I said, right, through a study. And, you know, that's kind of iffy too, because you can find a study to back up most things. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was rigorous academically. So thanks for noticing that, that process. And then, um, yeah, so about death, it's like, we are so shielded from it unless it's entertainment, right? Unless it's a, a fake death uh, shown to us from Hollywood on the big screen, meant to kind of glamorize it, um, prove who's the bad guy, who's the good guy. We Otherwise, we don't see death because death is happening in hospitals. It's happening in nursing homes. It's happening away from community and people. Once uh, you know, we do recognize somebody's dead, they're taken away, right? The body is uh, completely toxic is, is the way that we're, we're taught to, to respond to it, right? So none of us, unless we're in that field, either emergency medical workers or morticians, et cetera, doctors, we are not exposed to what death looks like. Uh, we cannot usually be with our loved ones, our elderly folks when they're passing, right? It's something that happens after. Um, and so through that, we become afraid of it, right? Because it's it's ingrained in us like, okay, this is going to happen far away from you because it's dangerous, it's toxic, it's not something you should be exposed to, unless it's entertainment. So it's a very skewed, paradoxical way to look at death, which, which is a part of life. We can't have life without death. Um, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's really a shame because when we think about our very sustenance, we are human omnivores, right? I know that veganism and vegetarianism is very popular now, but if we look at the anthropological record, there's never been a tribe or historical people that has survived on um, plants alone or fungi. Like we always need those nutrients that um, those essential acids, amino acids, the B12, et cetera, that's in uh, animal protein. So human legacy is to eat meat. That means that some other creature must die. 
And by us not having any knowledge of that process, except seeing some cows from the side of a freeway or some chickens, you know, uh, I think it really deprives us of, of an essential reality of life. So to take part in that process, you can kind of reschool how you think. Um, and, you know, it's not like we're, we're ever going to completely abolish our fear of death. There's a reason we have it. We want to avoid it, right? Survival is the game we're all involved in. But, um, but having some more acceptance for our own mortality, for the mortality of our loved ones, for the fact that we exist because of mortality, I think that uh, provides a healthier human experience where we're not as, you know, fearful and anxious and, oh, what's going to kill us? Um, so I'm not sure I'm being terribly articulate about that, but I'm glad to hear that other guests are bringing it up because it is a huge flaw in our culture. And if we could correct it, um, a lot of us could have a more realistic and healthier view of what human life is. Absolutely. I, I just, the more I, the more I listen to your book, the further along I get, I'm, I, because I, I knew you, you're, I mean, everybody has to have a brand today. That's just kind of where we land. Right. And, and I knew your brand was rewilding and I'm listening to her and I'm like, we agree on a lot more than I thought we would agree on. And I didn't, I don't mean that in a bad way at all. It was awesome because you had a quote and I, uh, Oh, I just got to show up. My buddy Patrick Orman's listening in from Kansas right now. I haven't seen him in a while, but he's a great knife maker and appreciates the old skills like you do. So, awesome. but you'd said, um, uh, see if I got the quote right, providing for our own needs, medical care, food, etc., is our own and only responsibility or something along those lines. And I think that kind of encapsulated the idea of self-reliance. And I thought if that doesn't match up with homesteading, yep. self-reliance, and prepping, of course. Prepping. Yep. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you see that? Because I mean, that was the cultural norm, you know, even a hundred years ago, basically for all of humanity. So, how do we remarry that with today's society? Right. I mean, we're just in this process of uh, increasing disempowerment. I think, as uh, technology and various services, you know, become our slaves, <laughs> even though we don't we don't have any way to control them or fix these technologies because they're too advanced for any one single person. Like I can't manage a cell phone network. I can't fix it myself. So I'm totally dependent as we are right now on our internet providers, on those server farms, um, on the Google, et cetera. So, but, but we're increasingly disempowered, even from simple things like we don't own our music anymore. Mm. Right. We don't, there's no, there's no physical object. It's streaming. You have to pay for that streaming service. Once you stop paying for it, there's, there's no more music in your life. Whereas, uh, you know, even 50 years ago, we can all collect the records. We can play them as much as we want. There's nobody surveilling us on what music we're listening to. I mean, almost every single service we have now, whether it's credit cards or health insurance, or it's our kids' schools, which are increasingly moving online. Uh, everything's tracked, surveyed. We have no control over how it operates. We've got to be entering in all these different passwords. I feel like contemporary life is just increasingly uh, depriving us of that sense of autonomy that I can make decisions um, and that self-reliance. So I had this episode um, was just a couple of days ago where my partner was like fixing a thermostat in this little cabin I have. And he was like, well, let me get you a digital one. Uh, and we were pulling it open and I was like, well, explain to me. And this is your stuff, Tim. That's why I admire you so much. It's like you're, you're teaching people how to deal with this, these things and, and, and be self-reliant, not need the expert, which is so great. But we were looking at the inside of the thermostat and how the wires connect. And when, mm -hmm. uh, when they connect, that makes the circuit, turning the, turning the heat on when they're not connected, et cetera. And then he's like, well, I'm going to get you a digital one tomorrow. And I was like, no, no, absolutely not. Because then, you know, I didn't know how to fix the 
thing in the first place. But now that you've shown it to me, I have some agency over it and I won't have to call an expert or look anything up online the next time it breaks. And uh, with every product in our life, you know, it's like my friend wanted to buy a cheese maker that was connected to the internet. <laughs> I, I mean, it just boggles the mind these ridiculous things they're throwing at us uh, in the means of like connecting it all, surveying, making sure that we buy another product once this one breaks because it was planned to break after a year and a half, right? Like these stupid things we have. Um, you're, not, you're only going to keep this for a couple years and it's it's got incredible resources in it that we don't even recycle. I'm going off. But anyway, so, um, so this idea that rewilding, getting closer to nature uh, and the prepping world and the homesteading world it is our history, like you're saying. Like the reason it's so appealing across these uh, vast demographics is because that's who we all were, who our grandparents were, great grandparents. And I think, in in kind of a spiritual level, we feel that ancestral connection. We know that we used to have more control over uh, the things that we did, the objects that we had, how we got our food, how we got our shelter. I mean, you think about it now. It's like a 20 year old. What are the basic needs for a 20 year old? Okay, they want to get a date and they want to get some food. <laughs> well, how do they accomplish that? It's only through this, um, which I think is absurd because these are fundamental things, right? Like finding your mate, <laughs> hooking up and, and getting a good bite. That What, what else is there to life? Um, and we can't do it without a nap now. And I think it's a really sad and sick state of affairs. I don't disagree one bit. I, I yeah. think I, I, I almost look, I, I, I I feel nervous for the generation coming up. I couldn't imagine having to navigate the dating world today doing that. I, I just, it blows my mind. I, and feel free to go off on tangents anytime you want because uh, you, you're welcome to do that. <laughs> I love it that somebody said, um, we, pack rat, pack rat, we call it survivalism. Great grandma called it Wednesday. Yes. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, pack rats. I said, I'll, I'll read it for those on audio. Harvesting and preserving food, taking care of our own health, being a resourceful part of a sharing community. We call it survivalism, and great grandma called it Wednesday. There's nothing wrong with that. I, yeah, I also I love that. that you embrace meat and you're honest with the history of humanity and being carnivorous and, you know, well, omnivorous, I guess would be the proper term. Right. Yeah. Which I appreciate. And then you talk about small-scale horticulture, agricultural being the answer. So can you kind of talk from your experience and, and why, I mean, it's a loaded question, but why the agricultural system that we have now is broken, not working, and where should we head with it? Okay, yeah, well, I'll do a teeny tiny history lesson for folks uh, who missed that, that day in sophomore year. Um, <laughs> so so if we're, if we're going to believe the evolution science, right, we've got Homo sapiens developing from other human um, primate species over millions of years. Then there's something magical that happens about 300,000 years ago, and we get our species, Homo sapiens. Now, what distinguishes us uh, is the bipedalism. We walk upright. We have these large brains, and we are um, scavenging, first of all. We weren't a hunting species in the beginning. We were finding... Uh, dead animals or injured animals before we learned how to hunt. But then we did learn how to hunt. Um, and the increasing consumption of meat and cooked meat in particular, a lot of scientists point to that as the source of our current intelligence. So if we hadn't had that meat consumption and that group project of uh, hunting big game, you know, like the buffalo, the woolly mammoth, um, other big species, big mammals, 
if we hadn't had that, we wouldn't be who we are today. We wouldn't have the cognitive ability. We wouldn't have language necessarily. So who we are today is very fundamentally tied to that, uh, that hunting heritage. So we're doing that for hundreds of thousands of years. And we don't exactly know how it happened, but sometime 10 to 12,000 years ago, which is pretty recent in the yeah. grand sweep of how long humans have been on the planet. Uh, at some point we started planting seeds right? And, and staying in one place. And it could have been because this one place we were doing that, the Fertile Crescent, happened to be really good at growing grains. We got addicted to the grains. Grains are addictive. We all know that. Pizza, yeah. uh, hot, fresh sourdough, hot from the oven. It's amazing, right? You don't want to stop eating it. They didn't want to stop eating it either. But it meant they had to stay in one place and watch their crops and guard the produce, guard the harvest. And from that, we see a cascade of uh, changes in how human societies operated. So now they become hierarchical because somebody has to um, plan the planting. Somebody has to guard the grain. Other people have to work in the fields. And we get this division of labor. We get uh, haves and have nots, those who are hoarding their share. And up to that point in history, humans were very much egalitarian, which means I go out on a hunt, I'm going to share it equally, pretty much equally with the rest of the group. I'm not going to deprive anybody of their fair share of the meat because we're all participating. We're all necessary for the survival of the group. But once you have agriculture, um, then, you know, some people are dispensable and they're only as good as how much grain they can harvest, right? Or how many fields they can plow. So I'm kind of fast forwarding, but we get then we get um, governments and institutions and taxation. We get warfare. We get sort of the suppression of women and uh, women's equal participation in gathering and hunting. Uh, and not all societies adopted agriculture. It was sort of like a slow progression where uh, there were still many hunting and gathering societies. And there still are many hunting and gathering societies today. It's just that their land is being taken away from them for agriculture. Then you go into the Industrial Revolution, you see that, okay, the way we're farming now is completely uh, a catastrophe on the landscape, right? It mimics a volcano exploding, a flood going through, or a tornado because it completely strips the land of its organic matter in order to plant. Uh, you're losing all the microbes. You're losing all, all the critters that used to live in there, uh, the insect life, and you're creating a mono crop right? Mm. Onto which we put all sorts of chemicals, pesticides, all of which are petroleum derived. Uh, and someday we're going to run out of that petroleum. So we have many, many systemic problems with how our food is grown, distributed. 30% of it is wasted, right? 30% of our food supply. So it's, so it's either like spoiling or it's just not getting eaten and it turns into compost. It turns into trash. Um, and that's just the beginning. I mean, right? There's movies and books on this, but my you know, one of the um, revelations I had in my journeys and talking with lots of people who are skilled in ancient uh, ancestral ways is that this idea that like we need to save the earth or that there's one solution for all people, that's also a modern convention of civilization. That's hmm. it's like a liberal, it's a very liberalized way of thinking that like, okay, we all need to do the same thing, adopt the same values, live the same life, and that's how we're going to uh, survive into the future. But again, you look at the anthropological record, there's not one way of living as a hunter-gatherer, right. right? The Inuit in the Arctic are completely different than the Walrani in, in Amazonian Ecuador, eating completely different things, um, different rituals, 
you know, a totally diverse ecosystem. So I don't believe that like there's one solution for us at this point, but I do believe that the most uh, robust way to live on this planet is to be self-reliant, is to mm. uh, figure out a way and whether you're growing it, you're hunting it, you're foraging it um, or you're scavenging it, right? Like, hey, the roadkill thing is free, fresh, organic, wild meat. Um, you know, finding your way to provide for some of your needs is is really going to be the best strategy for your health and happiness and also for our future survival. Should we run into these kind of collapse situations that so many people are projecting in our future? I love it. So you, you in that whole process, and um, at one point in the book, you kind of, or it may have been you or it may have been a quote from a source, but they kind of mentioned that the ideal society or the ideal community was around 150 people, which mm -hmm. I, which I liked. And then you also talked about, did I get the term right? Immediate return society. Yes. As opposed yes. to, yeah. So, and you also talked about how I, I, maybe I'm uh, kind of diving into it a little bit, but how it's voluntary, you know, people would come or go as needed. Uh, the group would grow or subtract depending on the amount of, uh, supply or natural resources that were around and they, they 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 couldn't by nature exceed what that land would allow and to me i was like that sounds like kind of individual I, I ascribe to kind of voluntarism where people are allowed nice. to associate or not associate with whomever they want and i'm i'm kind of beating around the bush to say that i really like where that came from and um is, is that kind of where you see society is is a voluntary association and um kind of sharing the work and and i don't mean sharing in a, a collective or a socialist kind of sense i just right, mean right, right. can you elaborate on that and save yeah. me here yeah sure 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 yeah. yeah no i love where you're going with this interpretation and i think it's spot on um right so you know it's interesting we say okay well we evolved we have a pelvis shape like this and we have a cranium shape like this and those were all things that developed because of natural selection right because um the people that had the bigger skulls to uh, you know encase the bigger brains they're going to survive more they're going to reproduce more the truth is is that we also evolved a social organization. So mm. human groups that were egalitarian, um, that were sharing in a non-coercive fashion, right? That proved over 300,000 years to be the best way for humans to socially organize. Now that's different than other primates, right? Like there's gorillas have a, you know, kind of a patriarchal hierarchy that works for them, but what worked for humans and our, you know, particular uh, reproductive strategies, it was we need a group. We need uh, women who, you know, are physically robust and can do all the same skills as men, but who can be protected by men when they need to be, when they're vulnerable and uh, childbearing or watching after vulnerable children. Anyway, so yes, uh, any kind of hunter-gatherer group that exists together, it's always going to be small because the bigger the group gets, the more tendency there is for hierarchy and dominance to develop, um, which isn't actually a great survival strategy for us. So we, um, in, in that social organization where you have everybody participating, they have a valued role, it's groups mm -hmm. of 12 to 25, at the most 150 people, you can know the, um, the folks in your group very intimately. You can predict what they're going to do. Um, you can trust them, or if you don't trust them, you can leave and join another group. So this is what you're talking about with that, um, 
it's called fission fusion, but it's kind of like what coyotes do as well. It's like, okay, if the coyotes want to be a pack because it's in their interest that season, they've got plenty of resources and they can take down bigger game together. Um, and they can have a more robust survival strategy being a pack. They'll do that. If there's fewer resources, they'll be lone, right? And same with wolves. Humans do the same thing. So we can go off on our own for periods. We can go off in small families. We can join other groups or we can be part of a big group. And if there's ever conflict uh, and we can't find a way to resolve it, and yes, homicide does happen in hunter-gatherer groups. It's definitely not on the level of our societies, but yes, violence, uh, aggression, jealousy, those are still part of the human you know, social genome. But we can leave. And this idea of voluntarism, every hunter-gatherer has autonomy over what they do. They're never forced hmm. uh, to participate. You know, that's one of the absolute prime values is like, I respect your ability to make good decisions for yourself. And I'm going to make decisions that benefit me and my family. And hopefully those two things coincide. If they don't, I'm over here and you're over there. So I think in terms of making a blueprint for society now, the one that does fit our evolution the most is that idea of like a voluntary state, no top-down control from government, nobody coercing you to pay up your share, uh, nobody coercing you to be at a job for eight hours a day. If you want to work, you work. <laughs> if you want to go find food, you go find food. So I think bringing back that sense of human autonomy that's what lights up our brains, gives us that dopamine reward system. And so many of us are depressed, anxious, ill because we don't have control over our daily tasks. We are coerced again and again. Mm. There's a labyrinth of rules and regulations we have to follow every day. And that, I truly believe, does work against our natural instincts that have evolved, you know, and proven themselves successful. I love it. I, uh, you'd mentioned there was doctors giving prescriptions uh, for kids to get outdoors for ADHD mm -hmm. or spending time in nature. And I think that, I think that taps into that, uh, that mindset as well, or, or the, the, the genetic or the inbred need to get out there and enjoy it. Yeah. Well, and the ADHD thing is really interesting because, um, you know, we see it as a pathology in our culture that somebody might be, have a little more energy or they get distracted. They can't focus on a task, right? But all the tasks that we require kids to do today, we didn't evolve with those. You know, right. they're, they're really abstract and uh, don't really relate to our survival at all. And most of them are just not fun. Whereas a kid who's growing up in a hunter-gatherer band, right, the stuff they get to do every day is super badass, right? Like yeah. working with weapons, uh, preparing food, going out into nature, exploring, working with fire. I mean, all that stuff is so appealing. Um, <laughs> great. But this idea that like doctors prescribing nature, I mean, it's sort of funny. It's a great trend, but it's also like, okay, so we are still reliant on an expert to point out right. to us. Um, that there's ADHD and that it can be treated or actually the kid can, um, you know, be more relaxed when they're outside and able to follow that butterfly or able to toss the, the rocks across the pond. Um, and so, yeah, what they do find is that kids with ADHD, they can calm down. Uh, they can be better behaved if they're given that free play time. But I wanted to say also that their uh, mode of attention is advantageous for a hunter-gatherer band because you need somebody who's always alert who's always looking out for danger, who, um, you know, has that boundless energy at times to get various tasks done. So to me, I don't see it as a pathology. I see it as, you know, the real pathology is how civilization and our structures and institutions are caging those, those people with that special gift. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs>
you um, I'm going to slide back just a bit in the conversation because you had mentioned the spiritual aspect of things. And I really appreciated, I don't know if I would call it your religious or your spiritual journey in this book as well, because you, did you marry in uh, to the Jewish faith or were you born in the Jewish faith? So I um, was born to a very secular Jewish father and okay. a kind of I don't know, like a religious dropout, a Christian religious dropout, which, which was my mother. So I was raised sort of interfaith, but also very secular. And then um, in my early 20s, I got interested in my Jewish heritage, which I see as sort of my first foray into ancestral skills, like finding out who are my ancestors? Where did my line come from? Um, there's a deep, rich 5,000 or more year tradition that uh, my DNA is connected to. And I wanted to know all about that. But then through learning about rewilding, connecting to nature, I found a deeper ancestral line, right? So like who, who were my people 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 years ago? They were your people too. All of us have hunter gatherer ancestry. And to me, that was like a more compelling um, spiritual link because that, because it, it applies to everybody. And I know, you know, speaking about native Americans earlier that they have a closer in time connection to living, um, living off the land and having, you know, an earth-based tradition but all of us have that. And, you know, it becomes a little bit touchy in some circles because uh, because of cultural appropriation, because, you know, Native Americans um, continually are thieved from, right, with their rituals and their music and their ceremony and their clothing. But I think that the big skills of survival belong to all of us and there's no appropriation there. Like if I need to find clean water, nobody can tell me I can't do that. And there's no like one Apache or Miwok way to find water, right? It's, it's something we all share. Um, so my spirituality kind of changed. And I, I realized that a lot of Juda Judaism and Jewish practice is agricultural. It's based on uh, being in one place, having a harvest, uh, subjecting animals and other people to, you know, forced labor, these forced situations that are not voluntary. And so I was like, okay, well, I, I am Jewish. I, I want to honor that tradition, but my my deeper connection now is to that hunter gatherer past. So this for me, and I, I appreciate it as well because I've kind of I don't know maybe not modeled or I've kind of followed a bit of that kind of journey. But so going back into history, into the you know kind of former societies, and now going forward into today, is there a benefit to religion? Uh, is there a need for it? Does it help? in the rewilding? Do you need that? That's a great question. Hmm. I mean, is there a benefit to religion? Absolutely. I mean, if you look uh, physiologically, what ha I mean, the stress relief that people get from um, kind of giving up the uncertainty in the universe to the power of God or to whatever spiritual deity that they believe in. I mean, that is, that is a huge um, health promoting thing. So I would say, yes, there's absolutely benefits to religion. There's benefits to us to sing together in a group, to pray, uh, to have that collective energy. So totally, absolutely. And then there are so many nature-based aspects. If we're going to take like uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition. I mean, if you think about so, most of the episodes in the Bible take place outside. Sure. They involve, um, you know, sacred species that we depend upon. It's, it's about honoring, um, honoring those animals that you know were used for sacrifice or were used for sustenance so absolutely i think we can find the the nature base and the rewilding kind of foundation in any religion 
Um, and I think it is really particularly fascinating to look at, you know, Jesus didn't do his sermon from inside the IMAX. He did it on the Mount, right? Outside in the fresh air. Um, you know, and so many of the Hebrew prophets also spent time in the wilderness to tap into their, uh, their inner knowing and then spread that to other people. So um, once again, I don't legislate, legislate for anybody. I think everybody has to find their own solutions. And I, I just kind of speak from understanding human history and then my own process of like feeling so much better and more connected once I tapped into my inner nature and the nature around me. Ah, I dig it. Yeah. In you kind of brushed by the the need or lack of need of government in general. Um, does government fit in to rewilding at all? Well, it really just gets in the way. Um, I, have a, I have a passage in one of the last chapters where I'm talking about, okay, so I can't, you know, it's illegal to go without uh, running water. You know, like if we were to kind of want to adopt a camping lifestyle as your everyday lifestyle, you can't. Um, your your neighbor could call CPS, uh, Child Protective Services, and say, okay, well, they need running water. They need electricity. Those are the standards of today. Um, and I know that it, it sounds kind of ridiculous when I say it that way, but but thinking, okay, well, two or three generations ago, we didn't have that stuff. So why is that necessary now to raise children and to live a productive life in society? Government, I see them kind of, um, you know, like just passing laws, uh, so even even in the, the lightest touch where it's like leave no trace in the wilderness. Um, well, yeah, humans for 300,000 years basically left no trace. And so now you're telling us leave no trace, but that that was our heritage. Um, so I I think, you know, of course, when we have this mass society, uh, it's really hard not to live with government. But I think that the, the more we can kind of get it out of our personal lives and out of our basic um, subsistence needs, the better off we'll be. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I know that's a touchy subject for some people, but around here you can, yeah, you can preach all you want there. You're, you're good. But it, yeah, I get it. I just, it would, yeah. And I, I do agree as well, but I, yeah, I mean, like you said, most, uh, most primitive or, you know, past societies were non-hierarchical. So you really, you know, you, you might have somebody, you're going to have people who need to figure things out for you at times or each other, but yeah, the, the lack of rule, I'm cool with that too, as far as that goes. Yeah. I mean, think about it. when I look at like the things that I can or cannot do on um, my land and it's weird to call it my land, right? Cause even that sure. is kind of construction of civilization, but you know, it's like, I can't have multiple dwellings. So I can't live in community, even if I wanted to, without paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to get permits, to build cabins, to have people living collectively as we once did, you know, in some counties, you can't harvest rainwater legally. You can't do, um, you know, like human compost, like responsible use of your own waste, either giving it back to the earth or letting it sit for three years. So it's completely sterile and then using it on a garden. Like you, you can't even deal with your own shit without the government telling you how to wipe is basically the situation we're in did we lose her for a second oh there we go you're good you, you, okay. see you said you oh no it's freezing oh no i'm here can you hear me maybe i should Hello. 
Is anybody else out there? I think we lost Tim because of the Wi-Fi in his hotel. So I'm just going to wait here. I don't know if anybody can. Oh, you can hear. Okay. So Packrat can hear me. Frozen on Tim's end. Keep talking. <laughs> That's a good one. Does anybody have any questions? Lost Tim. If anybody, you know, wants to uh, have a little chat here, happy to respond. Oh my God. Anyway, you see, we, we were just on a roll. Everything was perfect. I think we got kicked off of the hotspot. So we're good. I apologize, Jessica. This yeah, is no, usually... no, no. See, tech yeah. is unreliable and uh, we're at its whims. <laughs> we are. And uh, yeah, John says you can go on without me. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, yeah, this, I usually have anyway, but uh, I got some comments for you to, to roll through here in a minute. I want to ask you, but um. I had one more question I wanted to kind of finish up the discussion of your book on. And, and in the book, you I, you appreciate, or when you talk about the rewilding movement, and there was an expert or somebody who maybe had a bit more of an extreme look into it, but they looked at the rewilding skills as being the thing that some people will have in case there's a collapse an environmental disaster, whatever it has. And I kind of viewed that as a prepper in their bunker <laughs> emerging after a disaster to kind of deal with the world or rebuild the world. How do you see rewilding as kind of your own personal bunker to hold on to those old skills and hopefully spread them further as time goes on? Yeah, very cool. Very cool question and thought stream there. Um, that was exactly what I wanted to come to prepper camp to talk about was how hunter-gatherers were the first preppers and that, you know, if we're stockpiling goods and ammo and weapons and all the supplies that we need to continue this particular type of consumer lifestyle and all the systems fail, uh, we're going to run out of those things. And so then what do you fall back on? You fall back on the hunting and gathering and uh, using nature for all of your stuff. And then those cooperative and or defensive and offensive social strategies that we need to survive. Um, so what I was there telling people was like, okay, you can't just rely on the stuff. You can't just rely on um, industrial goods. You got to know the basics of human survival. And so even if it's like just taking a course or practicing while on a camping trip, I feel like it's important that for people who really do think there's something coming down the pike um, to, to, to realize that, you know, it's, um, it's an, a definite amount of time where we'll have access to the, the canned food and you're going to need to know how to hunt and gather and forage um, and share and or defend those resources as we once did. Now, the compelling argument behind this is that we've had so many different civilizations in the past 10,000 years, right? Many of them have risen and fallen, completely gotten destroyed. I mean, everybody mm. can name, you know, the Roman Empire, the Assyrians, uh, Easter Island. There's books been written about every single one of those collapses. What people do who survive those collapses and can't rely on the um, centralized systems that they supported is they revert to hunting and gathering. So it's it's not even like a new idea. It's like, this is what people have done throughout human history, um, either until the next civilization rises uh, or until they just blend seamlessly back into the forest. There's a lot of hill people in East Asia who have always been living kind of like a horticultural subsistence lifestyle, um, even after their last civilization collapsed in the, in the Middle Ages, right? So um, even mainstream scientists are talking about you know, if we have that two degree Celsius rise in a hundred years in the atmosphere uh, due to climate weirding, um, 
that we will need to use hunting and gathering as a subsistence strategy because this will not support the massive agriculture. Uh, you know, you just simply won't be able to grow corn in the Midwest anymore because the climate will have changed. So it's very compelling when you look into it, you look into the science, you look into the history. And then uh, the, the personal angle is just like, as I keep repeating, it's super badass. It's very fun to make friction fire. It's, it's incredibly empowering to make your own knife from a stone or even forge it in a, in a primitive forge. So I feel like the personal benefits, even if we're not thinking on a species level or about survival, you know, it's hard for people to think about that on a daily level. But if you think, okay, I want, I want to be badass, I want to be strong, I want to be like those participants on a loan, then that's another reason to, to start engaging these skills. Um, and then, you know, I'm not against using uh, the technology that's available to us now. I, I think, you know, use it while it's here enjoy it, but also know that it's not going to be here forever and that there is a more basic, easier, uh, less consumptive way to accomplish our human tasks. And that, you know, the more you can learn about that, uh, the, the more robust our survival strategy is. I dig it. I actually had that question. I, I kind of glossed over it earlier, but because obviously, you know, you're a rewilder, but you have an Instagram account, which is totally cool. But where do you where do you view technology? How do you see um, does it fit into a rewilding lifestyle, or is it a tool to use? Where does it fit into what you're doing right now? Yeah, I would say um, so. One of our fundamental human needs is to have that social community, and since we now live in this these nuclear families on these suburban lots or however folks are living, it's it's generally not in a group of twenty five people out in the woods around a fire every <laughs> night, right? So the way we're connecting these days is through technology. I'm not going to deprive myself of that fundamental human need to connect with folks. Um, so I'm not going to say like, no, I'm not going to have a cell phone. A lot of rewilders that I met, uh, some of them do that. Most of them are over 40. So they were used to living a life without a cell phone. Um, but, you know, for me and I am over 40 as well. I, I just, I can't imagine until the networks go down, you know, I'm going to be using my phone to be in touch with my loved ones and my friends um, and, and to spread the message of, of rewilding and self-reliance. So, but, but for other things where uh, advanced technology is not necessary, I try, I choose to use uh, the most appropriate technology for that. Right. So like, I don't want a gas powered lawnmower. I have like a push mower. I think, you know, for me, that makes more sense. I'd like to get out exercise. I'd like to use my strength. I don't want to burn gasoline and create a noise hazard. Um, but, you know, everybody needs to make their own choices. But certainly the cheese maker connected to Wi-Fi is not necessary for anybody. And so when things are getting excessive like that, that's when I'm like, oh, my God, our culture is just sick. Like, what are, what are we headed for? Um, and then there's some things you can't avoid. You cannot avoid if you want a, a car that's up to safety standards and emission standards. You can't avoid buying a computer with it. Like right. there's just there's just no way to not have a, a car computer, even though I hate that. And I hate that I can't roll my window down in my car anymore. Um, so I wish there was a bigger movement kind of resisting the digital and computerization of all of our um, all of our items, because I feel like it, it, it is that disempowering thing. Uh, but use it until it's gone is, is kind of how I feel. One of my, I guess, one of the, I don't know if you'd call him a modern philosopher or not, but um, you familiar with Marshall McLuhan at all? Oh yeah, the medium is the message. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. I, I, I studied him a lot in university, and I enjoyed one of his big concepts was every time humanity learned a new skill, they would forget an old one. So if yes. you learn how to fire a gun, 
you would forget how to fire or build a bow and arrow. Right. And it, how, how do you see that reflect in what we're doing and what, what you're trying to do? No, I think that's, it's absolutely true. And particularly with, um, I notice it with navigation, right? So um, <laughs> yes, or we, yes. Can't, we can't get uh, around without Apple maps anymore um, or Google or whatever you use Waze. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's, that's actually causing us to lose gray matter in our brain. Um, there's a famous study of London cab drivers that happened about, I don't know, 25 years ago, where they looked at the size of the hippocampus, which kind of organizes spatial information. And they showed that these London cab drivers who knew all the alleys and all the little corners and the, the back ways to get somewhere when there was a traffic jam, they had a bigger uh, hippocampus than other folks. So the more we use that navigational skill without the aid of digital devices, it's like we're actually <laughs> preserving our brain matter. Um, so I think, you know, for folks who are concerned about that, where we're, we're kind of externalizing our brain, we don't know phone numbers anymore. Uh, mm. We're not really used to kind of taking in facts because we know we can look it up the next day. Um, I would just encourage people to, to challenge that and to try getting around a new city without using the digital map or learn to navigate in nature using the sun and uh, clues from the plants and the lichen and the moss. And, you know, just we, we've, we can't lose these skills, right? Because then when the grid goes down, we really won't be able to find each other. So I think I, there's, there's some humorous elements of it, right? But there's also sure. like a very critical component of survival that we're losing when we're outsourcing our brains. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have, I, I know we, do you have time for a couple of questions and comments? <laughs> sure, sure. Okay. Uh, Pippin, uh, Ryan from Florida, he said, uh, and this, you can maybe comment on this, but he said, if I had a friend who didn't know she was supposed to be in sunlight for at least 20 minutes a day, spilled the beans on sunshine being a good vitamin and mentioned grounding. How, do you see the importance of being in the sunshine? No, you're going to get skin cancer. Um, yeah, no, right. just kidding. <laughs> it's okay. You're good. Absolutely not. We totally, we need the sun. Um, yeah, no, I've stopped using sunscreen altogether. And it's, it's just kind of about that awareness. Like, you know, when you're about to get burned, you can be aware of your situation. You can find shade, you can wear a hat. Um, but no, we absolutely, we have a crisis in our vitamin D levels. And we know that that uh, particular compound helps our immune systems incredibly, right? Like, there's a there's a group called Grassroots Health that has been doing a citizen science study of Americans' vitamin D levels over the last 20 years, and they have really definitively shown that people with higher levels get colds and flus less often. You know, like they um, didn't have any of the um, extended effects of COVID. People with high vitamin D, they better pregnancies, less likely to get cancer, develop cardiovascular disease. Uh, people with high vitamin D get skin cancer less, which is really interesting. Wow. It's kind of like the more you stay out of the sun for particular types of melanoma, the risky, the, the higher the risk you have of getting one of those fatal skin cancers. Um, so it's clear to me after looking into this stuff that we need the sun. The sun's good for us. Certainly, we all have different skin and we need to make allowances for that. And that's evolutionary, right? Like if we have pale skin like this, our recent ancestors um, were from northern climates because we needed to capture that vitamin D. But if we have darker skin, then our recent ancestors are from an equatorial area area where they were able to, they were getting so much sunshine that they needed to protect uh, their skin from it. So all these things I now see in the light of evolution um, and the, the, the thinking that like nature's bad for us, that the sun's going to harm you. You know, I, I just encourage people to question that. Sorry. 
There you go. You're good. I think we're I think we're back. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Great. Yeah, we were talking about vitamin D. And you mentioned how vitamin D, people with higher levels of vitamin D get lower levels of skin cancer. That blows my mind because that is antithetical to so much of what's taught right now, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's funny. Um, and that also, you know, was a particular area of research for me because my mom had a lot of um skin cancers that, you know, as a teenager, I'd watch her go to the dermatologist and then she'd get something cut off of her face um, and then, you know, be totally scared to go outside. And I just wish she had done the opposite. I wish she had sort of embraced um, a reasonable amount of, of, of solar radiation every day because I think that would have actually helped her health journey. I'm not a doctor, folks, but in it, and, and I just like read studies. So don't trust what I'm saying. But. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Dixon says, uh, have you read the theory of microbial stimulation through drum circles by chance? No, that sounds really interesting. Do you know about that, Tim? I do not. Uh, my buddy Chris is, uh, he has native heritage. So I'm, I'm going to, he's in Alberta here. I'm, I'll follow up with him and I'll send you some links because uh, this to me blows my mind. I think it's actually really cool. Through drum circles. I don't know. Does it have to do with the vibration of the sound? Does it have to do with stirring up? I don't know. That is really fascinating. Or could you, yeah, I don't know. I, it could be the fact that people are sweating in enclosed spaces and okay. passing things around. I, I don't know. I, it blew, I love that. I, I'm, yeah, I'll, uh, I'm sure he's, uh, I'll send you something if we can find it for sure. Nice. Uh, Digger says, where do you find an enlightened doctor or an enlightened health professional? Have you had any luck with that? Yeah. Um, so there's a big movement uh, called ancestral health. And there are many, many doctors who are looking into evolutionary medicine and also tailoring it towards your ancestry in particular, right? So mm -hmm. even though we all share, you know, like 99.9% .9 of the same genes, there are certain populations from certain parts of the world that have adaptations, such as being lactose intolerant or developing sickle cell anemia um, for African-American folks. And these were all evolutionary strategies to protect us from one thing or another. So it turns out folks with sickle cell are better able to repel malaria. Um, anyway, so there are, there, there are doctors who work in this field of either evolutionary medicine um, or ancestral health that even if you can't see a practitioner in your area, you can access, um, you know, their webinars, their books. Um, sometimes they do, you know, classes, etc. cetera. Uh, I highly recommend that. And then there's functional medicine. So functional medicine, and none of this stuff is going to be on your HMO healthcare plan, right. unfortunately, even though it is incredibly preventive. And if we were all practicing ancestral medicine, our healthcare costs uh, wouldn't be what they are today. So the, the, the system for payment has not caught up with the wisdom here. Um, but functional medicine doctors are also people that I trust. They do, you know, it's, it, the first approach is not uh, pill popping. The first approach is always lifestyle modification. So are you exercising in a way that's beneficial for you? Are you eating the right foods for your genome or for your particular gut microbial environment? Um, so those three, those are my three tips for finding that. Nice. I want to share this one with you here. This one's good. Uh, David says, I'm going to be buying two copies of Jessica's book, Aww. one for the house and one for the neighborhood library box. Thank you, David. You rock. I really appreciate it. And um, reach out to me and let me know what you think. I have a contact page on my website and I, I do like 15 minute phone calls with people who just want to connect and talk about ideas and see if I can help you with anything or you can help me with something. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate that. 
That's cool. I And um, for the record, your book link is in the description today. And I also pinned your website in the, the chat today. So that's there. But in everywhere, whether you're listening in the audio recording later, guys, or watching any of these live streams, you will, uh, all her link, all your links are there. But uh, I wanted to mention this one too, before we finished up, Rachel Brown, good friend of the workshop here. She said, you'd be a really good fit with Living Free in Tennessee. A good friend of mine, Nicole Sauce is another podcaster. So I can make the connection behind the scenes if you're interested, because you would totally be a great fit for her show. Oh my God. Awesome. Yeah. I was just in Tennessee, went there, I went to Greenville after um, Pepper Camp and, you know, it was really I love I love just going to new ecosystems and seeing the plants and trees they have there. It was it was a really fun time. Thank we, you. Yeah, for that. we bought we bought a few acres in Tennessee. We have a little land there, so I, I love, I'm I'm very partial to Tennessee. Yes. Awesome. But yeah, I I, I got to appreciate. I, first off, I got to say sorry for the uh, network issues we had today. That's not normal around here, but you, you kind of roll with the punches, you know. So yeah. I'm glad you can make it work. But can you can you tell us how to find you, Jessica? How people can throw money at you? I mean, support you, you know, know. that sort of thing. Yeah, oh, no, I know. No, 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 no money. Um, no, save that for your own homestead. Yeah, I'm at jessicacarewcraft.com and on Instagram at Why We Need to Be Wild. I'm also on Facebook, but I like uh, like I was talking about, you know, using hunter gatherer lifestyles <laughs> as an inspiration. For my Facebook, I like to keep it to a small group. I like to know everybody on my Facebook. Mm. But I am on there um, and, and do post a lot of stuff for the public. Thank you very much. And you are welcome back anytime. This I this I love your whole kind of bent of thought and your whole philosophy behind this. This was great. So thank you very much. Thank you. And I'm so glad you found the, you know, areas of overlap between what we're doing. And um, I've also enjoyed you on the other podcasts you've been on. So it's, it's just awesome to see how you've grown your uh, <laughs> influencer sphere and how you're helping so many different people in all parts of the world and make, you know, Canadians and Americans uniting. It's awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. If, if you can hang in the back for just one second, I'll close up and I'll be right okay. back with you. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jessica. Guys, I hope you dug that. I If you dug it at 10% as much as I did, then we succeeded today because reading this book, I, I'll be absolutely honest, the first 10% in, I was like, wow, where am I heading with this, guys? Because you know, I, I always tell us we have to be open to new ideas. And I was blown away by how much all of the important things meshed with one another. And Jessica is, she's got a, oh, I just, I loved her entire aspect of what she brought to this. Her mindset, her willingness to um, learn and share what she's done. And you guys, if you get a minute, check out her book, because it is a transparent look at a journey from, you know, tech, to the wild side of things. And it's awesome. We will have her back. If I have my way and she's willing, we will have her back. So make sure you can support her in any way. Follow her on the social channels, but more importantly, adopt some wild skills, guys. So as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week.